you might have wondered uh, this morning um, why we're not in the book of Galatians, and the reason is that today is Mother's Day. And I do not happen to be one of those who's convinced that it's sin to celebrate special days. I actually, uh, contrary to Baptists or some Baptists, I do have birthdays celebrations in my home for my children. Now I know, you don't think, I know. That was for you, Stephen. (laughs) And for you, Eric. Um, So we do celebrate special days in this church, including Easter and Christmas, and also including birthdays and Mother's Day, which obviously doesn't have any precedent in Scripture. And uh, it's a matter that we have freedom on, and each is able to work according to his conscience. And every year we try to take time each Mother's Day to think about the nature of motherhood. And this year, um, I would like you to turn with me as we take a brief break from Galatians. I'd like you to turn with me to the book, one of the books that is written by the opponent of the Apostle Paul in the section we've been studying in Galatians, namely the Apostle Peter. The first among equals in all through the Gospels, and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, if you will, please. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. 1 Peter is one of those hard books to find, one of those books that is hard to find. Um, at the end, it is before Revelation, but not much. 1 Peter 3. And I'm going to read verses 1 to 7, although we are going to focus our study on verse 7. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe their chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way in former times the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, And you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. And this is the word of God, and it's eternally true. And nowhere is that more important to say than here this morning. Uh, There are a few texts in the Bible. I was uh, talking to Barb Hughes yesterday who came to our Presbytery meeting to address the women. And she spoke at our women's retreat recently, and she was saying that she had had a conversation with someone about what she would be speaking on. And the woman wanted to know what kind of uh, women's ministry they have in their church. And uh, Barb was explaining to me that she had said... Uh, to the woman that uh, their women's ministry is built around the texts of Scripture that address women. And then she shuffled in her papers and books and purse, and she pulled out the sheet of paper, and she said, we put this together at College Church, and, and here they are. 
and she pulled out a piece of paper that, or three pages that on, I think both the front and back had the scripture passages that explicitly address women. And if you were to take the sections of scripture and you were to say you have three pages to come up with the sections of scripture that are most objectionable today to our pagan culture, you would hit most of them in those three pages that Barb had in her hand. Um, you know that they're not uh, taken from the editorial pages of Cosmopolitan magazine or Ms. Magazine or Time for that matter, even Reader's Digest. Um, they're quite countercultural, and they're a good reminder to us that we are not of this world, that we are the people of God, and that we died to this world when we were baptized, and that we were raised into a newness of life, what we've been studying in the book of Galatians, where we're dead, and we're now alive in Christ. Now, this text this morning is a very simple command coming right after a number of other simple commands. And all of these commands are aimed by the Holy Spirit and the Apostle Peter to what? To bless us. They're not aimed to make our lives miserable. They're not aimed to uh, make us uh, sad in this life so that we can look forward to the happiness in the life to come. As we were saying yesterday with the graduates at the party here, God is kind to us in this life and the life to come. And he constantly, in the New Testament, promises rewards in this life. And so we must look at his instructions as gifts to us aimed at our bliss. And here God is blessing us by giving us particular instructions that will bring us both to salvation and sanctification. Now, if you heard the text being read, you know that it's speaking of the salvation of an unbelieving husband. And uh, it, it, it ought to be a good reminder to us who are evangelicals and who like to say that simply praying a sinner's prayer transfers us from death to life and there are no questions asked and the only thing left is to, is to assure the person that's prayed the sinner's prayer that they are now headed to heaven and that nothing can take them from the hand of God. It is very important for us as evangelicals who like to think that way that, that it's such a simple thing to come in faith and it is simple to remind ourselves that here, when we're talking about husbands uh, who can be won by their wives' behavior, uh, the way those husbands who are unbelievers are referred to is how? Well, they're referred to by saying that they are disobedient to the Word. And I, as, as we go into our time of studying this text, I want to say to you, that I do believe that the issue of whether or not we accept and submit to the teaching of Scripture on the nature of our sexuality is a confessional issue. I do not believe that I would ever send my children to a church that refused to preach these doctrines of Scripture. And the reason is that there is nothing more foundational to our lives, humanly speaking, earthly speaking, than our sexuality. And if you want it that proven to you, just look at all the advertisements in magazines. And you'll see that they can't seem to get their mind out of the gutter. That sexuality is used as sort of the bottom line, constant appeal to purchase everything in America. And when America gets down to the issue of consumerism, America is getting serious. In other words, all of the people who lead us in our culture really believe in sexuality. 
And you know they do because they're constantly using it to make money. All right? <laughs> and therefore, sexuality must be very important. Well, I like to think that it's important for something other than making money. I like to think that it has a grand transcendent meaning in life, right? And that as we give ourselves to that transcendent huge meaning that's something other than body parts, that we grow into more mature people, that we grow into contentment and happiness, that our marriages become sweeter, that our children become more healthy, that even our dying is done better. And that certainly when we stand before God, we have a much greater chance of hearing from his lips, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And so I ask you as we go into this text this morning, to realize that when Jesus says you must take up your cross, he's not just giving you a hypothetical. But there are particular crosses to take up. And uh, one of the crosses is falling in love with the fact that a mother is not a father and a father is not a mother. And even if the father stays home to care for the children, it doesn't make him a mother. And even if the mother goes off with a, with a briefcase, it doesn't make her a father. All right. Now, what is going on here? Well, as I said, we have a simple command coming right after a number of other simple commands, all aimed by the Holy Spirit and the Apostle Peter to bless us and bring us to salvation, the disobedient husband, into obedience, namely into salvation, and sanctification to being made holy. And always for those married, the principal school of sanctification... <laughs> and I hope you have the self-awareness to laugh about this, the principal tool, school, of sanctification is the marriage relationship. Right? Can you all nod your heads and say, right. Children bring us to the edge, but wives shove us over the edge. Right? And there's nothing better than marriage to sanctify us. Why? Well, because... In marriage, in the marriage relationship, all of our warts and moles and sin are most evident. In marriage, the commitment is lifelong. You know, people that refer to their wives or husbands as friends are pathetic. Because what they're doing is they're lowering the commitment level. Oh yeah, it can be real romantic to talk about how you just love going out on a date with your wife and just talking to her, and I do, and I do. All right. However... Uh, there's something about a friend that can be cast off or put on at any time. And you can't do that with your wife. You've promised in front of witnesses that you will be faithful to her till through death you part. God parts you. And so the warts and the moles and the sins are evident. The commitment is absolutely lifelong and there is no path of escape. And the relationship's beginning is harmony and mutual affection with love songs and love stories and flowers and nothing but sunshine and blue skies with life stretched out before us. And I'm not being cynical in what I'm saying that, because that is how we begin. And consequently, as you go on in life, you have that memory and that's sanctifying, because you can compare that memory of the beginning to what's actually characterizing your relationship now. All right. Now, I hope he won't mind, but I'm going to talk about my son just for a second. Came home last night. We'd been at all the graduation parties. Walk up to my bedroom, and I hear this absolutely delightful voice in my shower. 
This little boy, who knows where he came up with it, is in the shower, and he's singing this. Imagine me and you, I do. I think about you day and night. It's only right to think about the one you love. And what? To think about the one you love and what? He didn't know a lot of the words, but the words there are, and hold her tight. So happy together. Da 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 da. And he was giving us all the sound effects. Mary was making our bed, and I just sat down and relished in it. I thought, you know, that's exactly what I did when I was his age. Uh, I can't see me loving nobody but you for all my life. When you're with me, baby, the skies are blue for all my life. And, you know, some of you remember years back, that sort of was the defining song of my falling in love. And in some ways, falling in love is a bad expression, but in some ways, it's absolutely apt <laughs> with my dear wife. And then the years go by. And the work begins. The work begins prior to marriage. Uh, the man's work begins at marriage. And then it gets tougher when your wife gets pregnant. It gets tougher when you have children. It gets tougher when you bear the yoke of full-time provision. You're out of school. It gets tougher when the children begin to leave the home. And your whole life is a life of sanctification, the principal school of sanctification is the marriage relationship. Marriage is hard work. It's good work, but it's hard work. And God's Holy Spirit gives us many specific instructions for that work that are aimed at producing, through that work, holiness in all of the parties related through the husband and wife. Now, certainly, we all realize the degree to which children today are at risk with bad marriages, although, you know, uh, what's the word that they use? Um, they make it clinical. Huh? Yeah, thank you, Eric. Yeah, it's nice to have somebody in the congregation that's in your brain and can... <laughs> you know. That's right. I cannot stand that when people refer, and I know all of you do it, so don't think I know you do it. I, everybody does it. But I cannot stand people referring to a dysfunctional marriage and a dysfunctional home because it makes it a clinical thing. And, and, and sin is not clinical. And it doesn't need a medical doctor. It needs the Holy Spirit and it needs physicians of the soul. You understand, my wife and I, when we fight, are not being dysfunctional. I'm being a pighead and she's being a dope. <laughs> and usually it's one or the other well some combination and some of you might want to guess which one is more likely <laughs> Dan was that you? <laughs> you couldn't stop yourself okay so here we have in this specific verse 7 an instruction that's well suited for Mother's Day the day we set aside in our calendars to honor the women who gave us birth but also the women who gave birth to our children. And the instruction is seemingly quite simple. Again, let me read that specific verse to you. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker since she is a woman. 
And show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. Okay, so the instruction this morning has application only to one sex, men. And specifically men who are or who will be husbands. And the instruction begins with this phrase in the same way. Now, if you're on the ball, you're on the toes of your feet, you will immediately think, this reminds me of something in the same way. This phrase obviously points back to what's gone before. And if we look above, we see what's gone before. Namely, above is a thorough set of instructions for wives that corresponds to the set of instructions for husbands. Now, let me say this, though, that by the use of the word corresponding, I do not mean to imply that the commands are interchangeable, the commands for the wife, and now the commands for the husband. They're not interchangeable. I'm not saying they're corresponding in that way, that the husband and wife may freely exchange one set for another without regard to their sex, choosing at whim to apply now this part of the formula and now that part of the formula, depending upon their sense of what is needed or wanted today. In our androgynous, our metrosexual day, it's easy to convince ourselves that God's word conforms to our perversity. And that sex is a role. In fact, that sex is better referred to as gender, as in gender roles. And that it may be taken on and off at will, much as a hat. We convince ourselves that God himself will one day take it off of us, this gender thing. That we'll no longer have it. That in Christ, we're on a road to dismantling it that the more sanctified men and women are, the more they will leave behind such petty distinctions and live a transgendered life without regard to their biological sexuality, living simply in the mist and vapor of being, not feminine or masculine, but human. In other words, thinking that part of God making us holy is his removing all distinction in our lives. And this is a definitive characteristic of postmodernism. Postmodernism obliterates and hates all distinctions. All of them. And boy, it starts with the distinctions that have anything to do with authority. And specifically, it hates the distinction of sexuality. It labels it gender, then it attaches the word role, and then it says that it's all a question of preference and that it's a continuum. Now, what is a continuum other than the obliteration of distinctions? It's only up to you to decide where on the continuum you stand. I was reading this past week uh, something, and I want to read it to you. Uh, Galatians 3.28 is the only verse that most people know about sexuality, where we are told there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And we know that the book of Galatians, because we've studied it, that the book of Galatians is a book addressing the fact that one group of people who used to be the sole people of God, namely the Jews, now that God had included the Gentiles in the church, included them in the covenant of grace, the Jews were still trying to say that the Gentiles had to become Jews, and they were using circumcision as a method of doing this, all right? And so in that context, the Apostle Paul is just absolutely screaming about this because the gospel is at stake. 
And in that context, he says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free man. There's neither male nor female. For you're all one in Christ Jesus. And it's very interesting. If you think about the Jews trying to turn the Gentiles into Jews through circumcision, you're not really Christians. You're not really accepted. You, you can't stand and, and sit and eat with us charter members until you're circumcised, you know? That's what was going on in the church in Galatia. Well, you think of how many men live with their wives. <laughs> I mean, do you understand what I'm saying? Many men treat their wives as if they cannot fully be pleasing to God and to themselves as husbands until what? Until those wives become men. I mean, isn't it an accurate statement to say that a man that does not live with his wife in an understanding way as a weaker vessel treats her as if she were another man? Yells at her as if she were a man. Pushes her as if she were a man. Gives her work as if she were a man. Doesn't hold the door as if she were a man. In other words, the refusal to obey this text is to do in the sexual relationship what the Jews were trying to do to the Gentiles in the racial issue. You have to become like us. Men, you have to become like us. So, it's interesting to me that this past week in my reading, I read this. This is a statement by a member of the Wycliffe Bible Translators, a guy named Scott Munger, a man who at the time he wrote this was a spokesman for the International Bible Society, which is owner of the copyright for the New International Version. And listen to what he says. He says, Many, if not most, of the languages in the world have no gender markings whatsoever. Many, if not most of the languages in the world, have no gender markings whatsoever. Now, could any of you predict where he's headed? You have any idea? Well, yeah, he's headed to the gender-neutral Bible, but how's he going to get there? Yeah. Listen to him. He says, Many, if not most of the languages in the world, have no gender markings whatsoever. Scholarly integrity should make all these things very clear to the public in the matter of Bible translation. Furthermore, he says, he suggests that under their system of thinking, these languages, maybe languages unmarked for gender, are closer to the ultimate heavenly reality. For in heaven... We will neither marry nor be given in marriage. We will be like angels in heaven. Now, you see what he's doing. What he's saying is that uh, many, if not most of the languages, don't make the distinctions between male and female that are made, for instance, in English, that are made in Greek, all right? And he's saying that they may, those languages, not used by God to inspire his word. Those languages may be clear, more, more close to the heavenly reality, to when we get to heaven. And uh, I think the implication... Well, um, so one of the men that he was talking to said, well, we will retain our sex in heaven. And he responded to that man saying, you can believe what you want, but you have no right to trouble God's church with personal convictions not substantiated by Scripture. Okay. 
Now, this is within the Bible-believing church. This is not a mainline man. This is in the Wycliffe Bible Translators, a leader in Wycliffe Bible Translators, the one, somebody that has a, a legal position with relationship to your New International Version. And what he's saying is that when Jesus said, you remember they came to him with this question about whose wife she'd be? You know, she kept having her husbands die, right? So in heaven, whose wife will she be? The Sadducees, right? Because they were trying to prove their pet theory. And Jesus says, uh, you err not knowing Scripture nor the power of God. And then he says this. He says what? He talks about heaven and he says... In heaven, we will neither marry nor be given in marriage. We will be like angels in heaven. So in other words, he's saying in heaven, there will not be any sexuality. There will not be men and women. There will only be beings. All right. Now, I just want you to know that if you study the understanding of that text throughout church history, uh, you could, if you didn't know what time this man lived, you could absolutely predict what time he lives by looking what he says at the text. He lives in a transgendered, metrosexual, androgynous culture that wants to find in Scripture some basis for his prejudice. All right? He's an ideologue, and he finds his ideology everywhere. And the idea that what Jesus is saying there is in heaven we won't be men and women, we'll just be sort of cosmic, you know, metrosexuals could really give us a mandate to go out and, like, all this study... Uh, uh, Beckham, you know, and, and like, wouldn't that be neat if, if all women could marry somebody that was as cool as Beckham, you know, the soccer dude, right? Um, or who? Who in America? Give me a name. Nobody wants to name a metrosexual, right? Okay, thank you. You've got courage. Yes, Brad Pitt. Okay. Now, is this what the text says? Matthew 22:30 For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. It doesn't say they're not men and women, and so they're like the angels. Are angels referred to as women in scripture? Mm-mm. They're men. Now they're not men men, all right? What it says is neither marry nor given in marriage. And this is hard for those of you who are widows because widows want to look forward to being married again in heaven. I know that sounds awful to say that, but I, my mother's one. And it is very difficult for us to get it in our heads that we won't be able to continue in heaven precisely what we've had here on earth that's good. All right? But Jesus explicitly says that in heaven, whatever does exist... What won't exist is marriage and being given in marriage. And so what we can really say from the text of Scripture is that in heaven, uh, the angels aren't married. That's what we can say based on the text of Scripture. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that in heaven we won't recognize our loved ones. That's very clear from Scripture. He will not return to me, David said when his little baby died, but I will go to be with him. Okay, so it's not that God's a killjoy and that he's going to rip away from us all those things most precious to us here on earth, but whatever we have in heaven in terms of familial relationships, including marital relationships, will be infinitely better than what we have here on earth. We can't conceive it because we have a jealous love here on earth. But it will be infinitely better. Now, I'm not proposing that it's like the Islamic scene of one big orgy in heaven. 
but it's going to be infinitely better. But I guarantee you that sexuality is, in, is, is a part of the basic creation of God. And it was present in the Garden of Eden when? Prior to the fall. Sexuality is not the result of the fall. It was prior to the fall. The order of the sexes was prior to the fall. All right? It's not the function of sin. And so when this man's you know, saying that uh, the other man he was talking to is troubling the church with this doctrine that uh, sexuality is something that should be carefully guarded, that the language, that the gender markings of Scripture should be guarded. And he's saying, you know, really, maybe what would be best would be for us, you know, really, if you think about it, the Holy Spirit should have inspired the Bible to be written in languages where all these gender markings didn't exist because then it would have given a more precise picture of heaven. And that's what he's saying, guys. The Holy Spirit just didn't know what he was doing, or she or it. You know, when they chose to use languages that have gender markings. Because most languages don't. Isn't that more like what heaven's like? And you know, you troubler of Israel. And I think that's priceless that he used that expression. You ought not to trouble the church. You remember the other guy that said that? Well, I'll leave that as a, as a riddle. So when men approach Ephesians 5, a similar slate of hand is made where Ephesians 5.21 says, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And again, being androgynous, being transgendered, being metrosexuals, they say, okay, see there, be subject to one another in Christ. And then it says, wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. But it's in the context of mutual submission. And there we trot out this concept. And it's just absolute bunk. All it is is one more ideologue trying to get into Scripture the philosophical commitments, the prejudices that we have today. That's all it is. It has no legitimacy, no academic legitimacy, certainly no spiritual legitimacy, no theological legitimacy, even though the whole world is screaming at you from all sides that every Christian prior to now has been wrong and we have come into the truth. We have a new reformation similar to the reformation of Luther and it has to do with sexuality. Isn't it nice that we live in the day when God has revealed to us the true nature of the teaching of Scripture about what it means to be men at women? You know? <laughs> it's like bunk, guys. And it's bunk that destroys souls. Okay? Because what it does is it makes men dwell with their wives as with the stronger vessel. Do you realize this? Once you don't have to live with your wife as with a weaker vessel, because, I mean, can you imagine this Mr. Munger dwelling as with his wife as with a weaker vessel? He wouldn't let those words come out of his mouth unless he was forced to read that text from Scripture. Because his whole project is de- uh, de-sexing, all right? And, you know, pick a text in Scripture, in all of Scripture, that runs most in the face of our culture, and I would say that one real close to the center would be as with the weaker vessel. I mean, come on, be honest with me. Even if you hate what I'm saying, at least admit that it's true that that would have to be real high up in the choices that we'd narrow ourselves down to in the texts that are most contrary to our culture as with the weaker vessel. Think going into Barnes & Noble, the magazines that you look at. Right? What pictures are you assaulted by today? Well, now it's women's bodybuilding magazines. 
And I, I just have to struggle to walk by them because I just, I find them so attractive. <laughs> the reason everybody's laughing, although some of you aren't, is that you all know that I don't find them attractive. And do you know why? Because I want a wife who is feminine. And so for me to say that I'm attracted to a masculine-looking woman, uh -uh. I am absolutely horrified at the images of abuse in Iraq. But no matter how bad those images are, the thing that is most awful about them is that women wearing uniforms are humiliating the men of the Arab world. I think. And we are surprised by 9-11? Let me tell you, I would not want to exchange my position with any man who's Islamic because of the denigration of women in their culture. All right? But at least men in Arab cultures have not forgotten what it is to be men and women. And when they see women doing the things to their men that our women are doing, what do you think their response will be? Remember I say that the feminism that's taking the church is a heresy and it destroys souls. It destroys bodies. What do you think the tremendous movement into homosexuality is but the absence of the instruction of children as they grow up that it is a delight to be a girl. It is a delight to be a boy. And that these things should be maximized, not minimized. And then would it be any surprise if a whole generation of baby boomers grow, grows up having children and giving Tonka trucks to their girls and giving dolls to their boys and trying to get them in touch with their sort of, you know, other side, all right? And then those kids grow up and they're homosexual. And we go, where did that come from? It destroys souls. You think of all the ways in our culture today that we deny the truth that intrinsic to the female sex is that she is weaker. And oh, no, 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 no. It's just a matter of time. A little more development, taking a few more steroids, and women will be whooping up on men on, on the pro golf circuit. And in tennis and in basketball... And you can't disengage intellectuals from this notion that ultimately it's all the result of culture and there will come a time when women compete with men on an equal basis in every single sport. I have a relative who will remain nameless, several of them, who actually will argue that, have argued that with me. It boggles my mind. It's just a matter of time, and women and men will compete on an absolutely equal basis. It's only because of cultural oppression that they're not doing it right now. And so what do you get? Well, you get East Germany in the Olympics when I was growing up. 
I never found myself wanting to marry one of those women. (laughs) As a matter of fact, I am being charitable to call them women. And so what has to happen? Well, we're so into competition and sports that the men don't have sufficient testosterone. And so they're on steroids. And you have certain baseball players with size what heads? And you think of all the ways that we absolutely try to obliterate this teaching of Scripture that in fact uh, the female sex is the weaker sex. And, you know, you think of little boys in elementary school and how all of elementary schools are set up basically so that the little girls are perfect and the little boys are awful. And thank goodness recess comes sometimes because then we get rid of them for a little while. And then you put a woman out at recess who has absolutely no perspective on what it means to be a boy and finally be free. And she turns the outside into the nursery that the inside was. And, oh boy, they better not skin their knee. And then you get into junior high school and the girls are bigger and more coordinated anyhow. And then you put them on soccer with your little boy. And your little boy and that girl who is fully developed, and your little boy who's still a, a toothpick, collide on the soccer field. This happened to Joseph once. I watched. And that woman didn't budge, but little Joseph exploded in the air and came down flop on his bottom And the whole game stopped. It was so awful. (laughs) You know? Hey, let's have co-ed soccer. Ain't this a great idea? And then it gets into high school and all the honors are taken by home. And then it gets into the professional training. And you have long had the majority of students in mainline seminaries women. And then vet school. And now being a vet is taking care of children... Or, there you have it. That's <laughs> true. I mean, there's a whole article in the New Yorker a year ago about how veterinary medicine has completely changed as women have taken it over, and it's gone from utilitarian sort of practical efficiency to all about feelings with hospitals and the whole shebang. Now, am I saying that, sh- that animals should be abused? No. But remember, God gave animals to us to eat. I mean, I hate to say it, but that is God's gift to us. And it's not that God despises animals, not a sparrow falls without his knowledge, but that sparrow may be eaten with us and God will know when it dies. And God will not punish us for eating it. All right? How do... All right. I'm going to move on past that issue. And now I want to go to the issue of doctors. Do you know in the year 2003, in the fall, for the first time ever, more women applied to medical school than men? And we don't get it. And every single one of these things is another nail in the coffin of God's gift of sexuality. And you say, well, I'm not sure there's anything wrong with women being, being doctors more than men or pastors. Or, and, uh, and I say, you're not starting from first principles. 
You're, you're trying to work your way backwards. Start with the Garden of Eden and how God made man and woman and what Paul says about it. He says, I do not allow a woman to exercise authority over a man. She must be silent, for Adam was created first and then Eve. All right? And then you come to Peter saying, Husbands, dwell with your wives in an understanding way. Because why? Because she's the weaker sex. Now, do you accept these teachings? Do you accept them? It's Scripture. Nobody denies that it's Scripture. Do you accept it? If you accept it, here's the joy. You're then free to live with your wife in an understanding way. Because she's the weaker sex. Now, come on, be honest with me. Really honest and tell me, wouldn't you really have preferred if that had been the home that you had grown up in? Where your father dwelt with your mother in an understanding way as with the weaker sex? Come on, be honest. And wasn't your father at his worst when he refused to acknowledge the weakness of his wife? You guys, everything that we have called politeness and chivalry is the little apparatus of hints and signs and, and riddles and, and it's, it's the way that we ornament this central doctrine that the woman is the weaker sex. Every time a man opened a door for a woman, he was living with her in an understanding way because she was the weaker sex. Every time, who was it, Sir Walter Raleigh, who, who laid down his cloak in, in the puddle so that his wife or the queen could walk on it? Thank you. You know, huh? What exactly is this story? Go ahead, you can tell me. Oh, come on, you know, you, you nodded your head at me. All right, Stephen, tell me. Well, your son does. Okay, tell us about it. Okay, which being translated means I couldn't hear any of it. I, I knew he got to the end. So I was right. It's the cloak in a puddle. Okay. And it was the queen. Thank you. So this is the story. And the stories vary, but this is politeness, this is chivalry, these are manners, this is what it means to be a gentleman. A, a what? A gentleman. Gentle. Why? Dwell with your wife with understanding. Uh, Luther, on this text, it's very interesting, he says, after all, what man uses his other tools in a, in, an un, in, a, in a misunderstanding or ignorant way? He says, for instance, how many of you would go out with your scythe and try to cut a stone? 
And I began to think about that, and I thought, yeah, you know, men with their tools are usually pretty observant of the ways that they can harm the tools or use them appropriately. So, for instance, you know, what man tries to move a rock pile with his, uh, with his lawnmower? You know, what man uh, uses his uh, Volkswagen Bug to pull a 20-foot yacht or boat? Okay, men are pretty good with their tools, aren't they? They live with their Volkswagen Bugs in an understanding way, knowing that it's the weaker car, <laughs> right? And if he saw his wife treating a Volkswagen Bug as if it were an F-350, can you imagine what he would say to his wife? And yet he goes home and he treats his wife as if she were a man. He has no understanding for her weakness, no sensitivity to her uh, maternal instincts of protection for the feelings of her children as they're disciplined. It's just getting in the way, you know? You know something? I know that I run the risk of you despising me. Much of my married life, as I look back on it, what I realize is I cultivated my wife's independence of me. Okay? I cultivated what? Her strength. I resented the fact that I had this woman dependent on me. And so emotionally, in discipline, in work, I tried to make her into a man. And this was at the very time I was repenting of my feminist egalitarianism. But I was blind. So I'd treat her, talk to her, um, push her, push her, push her, push her. You know? Be a man, be a man. Never said that. But if you'd observed it and you had any health in you, you would have seen that's what I was doing. And that's what many of you men do. You are trying to make your wife into a man. You don't want her dependent on you for money, although most of you are chivalrous enough, you have enough still residing in you that you still have a sense that it would be dishonorable to make her go out and work and support the family and for you to stay home. But that's dying! Even that will be gone soon. But when it comes to the relationships with the children, do you stop and wait for your wife when she set the food on the table and forgot one dish and she's in the kitchen? Do you wait for her to eat or do you just go ahead and eat? And you say, well, what does that have to do with anything? That's like being uptight middle class. I say, no, it's living with your wife in an understanding way as with the weaker sex. Okay? How about your bed? You know, twice. And I don't know how many years I've made the bed, but it happens to be recently. One time, Mary Lee denied that I'd made it. When I'd made it, because it was inconceivable to her that I would do it. <laughs> All right? And here's what I noticed, making a queen-size bed. Do you realize these women have to fold that bed in half to get a mitered sheet on? Have you ever tried to do it, men? Try it. And it may be that you'll begin to offer to put on the mitered sheets with your wife because she has to fold the mattress in half in order to get it on the final corner. Now you say, well, I'm not about to do that. And I say, okay, how do you live with your wife in an understanding way that's in any way analogous to the way that you live with your orbital sander and your F-350 truck? You know? Pity the poor guy that goes out fishing for barracuda with 
what, a two-pound fishing line? <laughs> you know? Now he lives with his light wine. He lives with it in an understanding way, knowing it's the weaker line, okay? And yet with our wives, we don't live with them in an understanding way. The Bible does not say that people that are weak are despised. The Bible says that God reserves special honor for people who are weak. And you know that if you go to the... um, if you go to the Beatitudes, that the Beatitudes are just one long extended riff of Jesus on the theme of blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall see God. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the meek. Okay? So there's nothing dishonorable about being the weaker vessel, is there? Unless, of course, you have a husband who doesn't live with you in an understanding way and who views this as all a lie from the past that we need to get rid of. Show or honor is a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. And because I'm out of time, um, in a couple of weeks I'm going to finish the second half of the verse. That's called an executive decision. (laughs) So let's pray. Father, we thank you for our wives. We thank you for our mothers. We thank you that... They have and are giving themselves to family.